I'd like to introduce Dr. George Grant. He's the pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church, the founder of Franklin Classical School, the Chalmers Fund, and King Meadows Study Center, and the author of more than five dozen books. Uh, he served as an assistant to Dr. G. D. James Kennedy at the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church and taught at Knox Theological Seminary. He makes his home in Middle Tennessee near the historic town of Franklin with his wife and co-author Karen, who's also joined us uh, in the cold Moscow <laughs> winter. Together they have three grown children and six grandchildren. Give a warm welcome to Dr. George Grant. Well, thank you. It is a great delight to be here, despite the weather, and uh, it is a great delight to be able to, uh, once again, uh, have the opportunity to fellowship with so many dear friends here in, uh, in Moscow. Uh, Karen and I have uh, deep affection for all that the Lord is doing here uh, we get to see Doug and Nancy only about uh, once a year at ACCS conferences, and uh, so this is like a, a double dipping. It's, uh, it's great delight. Uh, the, um, th there is a widespread and prevailing myth that somehow the gospel is not sufficient, Th that somehow the forces of evil will prevail. That, that somehow the purposes of God, that the earth should be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that will be frustrated until a last gasp rescue at the second coming of Christ. So the purpose of this missions conference is simple enough. It is that the gospel is sufficient. Uh, that the gospel will prevail among men and nations, uh, that the gospel is good news of glad tidings and great joy. Uh, the gospel is a message of sure and certain hope from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden uh, to the very end in the throne room of eternal glory overlooking the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this may require plowing through the often difficult terrain of soteriology, eschatology, hermeneutics, and history, but our hope is that we will be able to present a simple and coherent vision for gospel fruitfulness, for gospel blessing, for gospel effectiveness, for gospel victory. Our desire is to provide an antidote, an alternate view, that the good news of Jesus Christ is accomplishing the very thing that he set out to accomplish. Our aim is to offer a caveat to evangelical pessimillennialism. We believe that grace abounds. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon asserted a century and a half ago, it would be easy to show that at our present rate of progress, the kingdoms of this world uh, will never be and could never become 
uh, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Indeed, many in the church are giving up the idea of it, except on the occasion of the advent of Christ, which that as it chimes in with our own idleness, is likely to be a popular doctrine. I myself believe, he said, that, that King Jesus reigns and that the, all of the idols of this earth will be abolished. The Holy Ghost would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. Or as Toby Sumter has said somewhat more simply, hello world, Jesus bought this place with his blood, deal with it. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight with a great and glorious hope. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the sure certainty that Jesus has ushered in the kingdom, and that we have the great privilege, privilege of seeing it come to pass before our very eyes. I pray that you would fill us with hope and with certainty, that you would set our affections on things uh, that, um, uh, that cause us to believe and to act and to live in accord with the truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time, when we hear those very familiar words, we know that whatever follows is likely to be a story, perhaps a fairy tale or a fable or a morality tale. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. Or uh, once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived in a village near the forest. She always wore a, a velvet riding cloak of scarlet uh, so that everyone in the village called her Little Red Riding Hood. The phrase comes from an old Anglo-Saxon idiom meaning at some unspecified time in the past. Uh, notice it is intentionally imprecise. It could imply long, long ago, or it could be a more recent memory. Also, notice that there is a, a kind of rhythmical and poetic redundancy in the phrase. Once means on some occasion. While upon is used in a now obsolete construction, meaning in, at, or during some moment past. And a, a time is the unfolding of the timeline of the story. It's intentionally redundant. It's like Boutros, Boutros, Gali or something. <laughs> Often, uh, once upon a time is paired with an equally unspecific in a land far away. Taken together, these literary elements remind us that the story that we're about to read or hear is not to be taken as history. It's not a record of events at a specific time and in a specific place. Instead, it's a legend, a parable, a myth, or a fairy tale. It's a striking contrast, isn't it? The story of the gospel, 
does not occur once upon a time. It doesn't unfold in some nebulous, generic, faraway land. Instead, it opens with the historical precision of genealogies, of geographical details, of verifiable timelines. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip was tetrarch of Iterea. And Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene when Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. No, the spread of the gospel of Jesus... It's no fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time in a land far away fable. Indeed, it is the real life drama of history set in what the Apostle Paul called the fullness of time and in the optimal location. During the first century when the Roman Empire was enjoying the days of its greatest glory, the eastern Mediterranean served as the crossroads of the world, a land bridge between Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was the hub of communications and of commerce and of transportation and of trade. It was where the great highways of the ancient world converged, the royal road from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, the king's highway from Egypt to Syria, and the Silk Road, all the way from China and the Spice Isles to Rome and the European provinces. And thanks to the Pax Romana, a great imperial peace, uh, the roads were safer than at any other time in all of history. And uh, with Latin serving as the lingua franca, the common commercial language, travel was much more easily navigated. The vast network of unified Roman roads, the unified Roman culture, unified uh, Roman commerce, uh, unified Roman justice, and unified Roman language ensured that the gospel went forth at the perfect time, from the perfect place. This is what later historians would call the preparatorio evangelica, a divine preparation for the good news According to Michael Green, the church historian, without the unifying effects of Roman imperial civilization, it's difficult to imagine how the Christian gospel could have possibly spread throughout the whole known world as fast as it did during the first two centuries after Christ. Here's what we know. God is sovereign. He purposes the timelines and uh, the convergence of events on those timelines in accord with his sovereign purposes. He always has. He always will. We never have to doubt that. Even in times where we seem to have cultural disruption and, and confusion that swirl all around us, God is still sovereign. Beginning on the day of Pentecost, festival goers in Jerusalem from all across the Roman world, Parthia, Media, Elam, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia Minor, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Crete, and Arabia first encountered the message of the gospel. 
those who believed were very quickly mobilized as Christianity's first missionaries. That they took with them the message of redemption in Christ back to their families, back to their homes, back to their communities. We know, for instance, that before the Apostle Paul was converted around 33 to 36 AD, there were already thriving communities of believers to the east in Damascus, to the west in Cyprus, and to the north in Antioch. But many of those early believers were not content with merely bringing the good news home. They would eventually travel far and wide, utilizing the advantages of the Preparatorio Evangelica uh, to spread the hope of redemption in Christ anywhere and everywhere that they could. The first great mission-sending church was in Antioch on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria. It was there that believers were first called Christians. It was there that the church sent out the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee from nearby Tarsus, and Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, to proclaim the gospel. First in Cyprus and then in thriving trading centers of the southeast Anatolia. After just three of these missionary journeys, churches had been planted throughout the eastern Mediterranean in Ephesus and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the three towns of the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Uh, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. It could be said without exaggeration, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. At the same time, the remaining apostles of Christ also began to scatter throughout the region, spreading the message of eternal life in Christ Jesus. The accounts of their Travels are shrouded a bit uh, by a hagiographic legend, but there is enough verifiable history to piece together a remarkable story of faith, courage, adventure, and witness. That we know that the Apostle Peter eventually made his way first to Antioch and then on to Rome. Among his disciples were Ignatius and Clement. Uh, Peter's brother Andrew traveled to Scythia, uh, northwest of the Black Sea, and then later to Empiris uh, in the northern coast of the Ionian Sea. His most notable disciple was Stachys. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, ventured far to the west, perhaps as far as the Iberian Peninsula where he discipled Iria and Flavia. Uh, The brother of James was John, the beloved disciple. He became the pastor of the thriving church of Ephesus, where Polycarp eventually succeeded him. Philip settled in Hierapolis after a fruitful itinerant ministry with his disciple, Polycrates. Bartholomew traveled eastward to the Tigris River before heading south to the Indus Valley. His most notable disciple was uh, Pantanus. Uh, Matthew, the gospel chronicler, remained in Judea for many years, uh, departing eventually for Parthia with his young disciple, Lipsius. Uh, Thomas, 
all his doubts now erased, ministered as far to the east as the Euphrates and as far to the south as the Indus Valley, where his disciples, Adai and Agai, continued his work. James Alpheus traveled from the Black Sea uh, northward as far as to the Caspian Sea, and his disciple uh, was uh, Hestius, who then ventured into the heart of what today is the Ukraine. <clears throat> uh, Thaddeus followed the Apostle Paul's footsteps to Macedonia uh, with uh, his most noted disciple, Gorelius. Uh, Simon ministered all across the North African littoral from Egypt to Libya with Tertullius, his disciple. Matthias, who was added to the number of the disciples to replace Judas Iscariot, uh, traveled as far south as Ethiopia. His disciple, Hisias, engaged in a long and fruitful ministry there in the years that followed. That's an astonishing story. A handful of people filled with gospel hope fanned out in less than a decade and reached the entire eastern and much of the western Roman world. In God's good providence, the gospel went forth and transformed communities. The sprawling lands of the eastern Mediterranean, what are today the modern nations of Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia boasted the earliest churches, endured the fiercest persecutions, produced the greatest theologians, and sent the most daring missionaries. Knowing what we do today about these lands may make it difficult to grasp how deep and how wide the Christian culture of the Eastern Mediterranean once was and how long it has endured. Just as these lands served as the center point and hub of the Roman Imperium, they became the center point and hub of Christian influence for more than a millennium. It's astonishing. What could take a handful of, of largely illiterate, frightful Jews from Galilee and Judea and scatter them across the world with such effectiveness, such power, such courage, such vision as to bring about a dramatic change so that within two centuries, the Roman Imperium itself was changed forever. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24. The Bible tells us that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and it shall not pass away. Daniel chapter 7. The, the Bible tells us that God declares, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, Isaiah 66. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
in Revelation chapter 11, we're told the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The reason this handful of of, of Jews scattering across the Roman world could accomplish what they did was they believed that. They actually believed when they prayed the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven, they actually believed that God heard and answered that kind of prayer. They believed it. They believed the promise. Peter tells us, he has granted to us his very great and precious promises. In 1 John, we're told, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. In Psalm 108, we read, God has promised in his holiness, Psalm 119, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. In Luke chapter 1, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy promise, he did all of these things. The gospel of God is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. But he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all of the promises of God find their yea and amen, their yes in him. The promise uh, by faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe, Galatians chapter 3. Therefore, we are the children of promise, Galatians chapter 4. The promise of Jesus Christ is the gospel, Ephesians chapter 3, a promise before the foundation of the world, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In Psalm 77, uh, we have this question. Has his steadfast love ever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? The disciples believed not. And they went forth with boldness and courage, believing that the promise was for them. The story of how this all unfolds is revealed to us beautifully in Acts chapter 1. There we read in good Dr. Luke's introduction, in the first book, O Theophilus, that I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I I love that introduction because it reveals to us just exactly what the good Dr. Luke is going to do from that point on all through the rest of the book. This is intended to be the sequel of all that the Lord Jesus is continuing to do and teach. That's why when uh, we, uh, we dig into the book. We see over and over and over again that the theme is what God is doing. Uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 24, uh, they prayed and said, uh, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show uh, which one of these 
you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which uh, Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. Chapter 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was the great confidence of the disciples. They didn't go forth in their own strength. And they knew that the sovereign God who had sovereignly put in their uh, in their way, the means of grace to go forth to all of the world, they simply believed it and went. These days, there are millions of Christians who pray the Lord's Prayer and don't believe it. They don't believe that his kingdom will come and his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as a result of their doubtfulness, the world around us doubts it as well. In, uh, in Acts chapter 1, we're told in uh, verses 2 and 3 uh, that <clears throat> during the 40 days uh, between the resurrection and the ascension, uh, Jesus instructed his disciples. Uh, This is uh, uh, the account that Luke gives us. Uh, He uh, he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. This is so critical. Uh, Jesus uh, now gives them many proofs. Uh, the, uh, the, the Greek word here is a, is a word that literally means that, uh, that the evidence was laid out before them. And he spoke about the kingdom. Uh, the, the word itself becomes evidence for the kingdom. And then in verse 4, it says, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, uh, not to escape the hostile uh, crowds, not to run and hide to Galilee, not to uh, avoid the possibility of arrest and uh, crucifixion, but they were to wait, wait for the promise of the Father. Now, If you read the scriptures, you recognize immediately there's a whole lot of waiting going on in the scriptures. Uh, There's uh, the the, the wait between uh, Abram and Moses, 250 years. Uh, There's the wait between Moses and David, another 250 years. Uh, there's, uh, There's the 70 years of the Babylonian exile Uh, There's 400 years between the return of the people of Israel uh, to the story of the New Testament. There's an awful lot of waiting going on. And this is a constant theme all through the scriptures. Wait for the promise. Uh, The Lord will surely bring to pass. He will surely answer. And he will surely provide. 
this becomes a constant theme. And so Jesus tells the disciples that they are to wait, but they are not to wait without hope. For there is the promise of the Father, he says, which you have heard from me. John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That this is the very great and precious promise uh, that God offers to his disciples. Uh, it is the promise of certainty and power and presence. Uh, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so they believed it, and empowered on the day of Pentecost, they were ready. And they boldly went forth to see what the Lord would do. These days, it is imagined that missions is largely what we can do. But it is largely imagined that evangelism is what we can muster new techniques, new styles, new methodologies. Uh, new approaches, that when in fact the strategy of the apostles was just to go forth boldly and allow God to do the work. Uh, We now have um, a a seminary training the next generation of church planters in Alexandria, Egypt, and another one in Dehuk, Iraq. But we have seen this uh, remarkable opportunity opened up, and uh, with a handful of effective teachers, we've uh, started teaching classes to prepare the the next generation of church planters. You should see the fire in the eyes of, of these young disciples who believe that the Lord is at work. You look around and in the center of the Islamic world, and you think, what possible hope is there? How can we pull this off? How can we do this? When I talk to other pastors about what we're doing, they just kind of look at me and go, yeah, we always knew you were crazy. <laughs> but this is really crazy. You, 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 you can't do this. And the truth is we can't. But God can He has before. We have seen it. Years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to help uh, get started a a network of classical Christian schools in Indonesia, the world's largest Islamic country, where there is a, a peculiar mixture of hardened materialistic postmodernism and Islamic fundamentalism in this witch's brew of an odd culture. And um, when I first went, I did a whole bunch of research and uh, tried to map out as best I could when the gospel first got to the Spice Isles of Indonesia and by what means. And I discovered that there are records of Adai and Agai, the disciples of the apostle Thomas, who actually made their way from India through the Indian Ocean and over to the Spice Isles to Indonesia uh, to uh, plant churches in Java and in Sumatra 
at the end of the first, the beginning of the second century. How did they have the chutzpah to think that they could go off by themselves and start planting churches in a faraway land that most of the rest of the world didn't even know existed? It was because they believed the promise. They believed that God was responsible for the work. That they believed that it was not their gifts, not their abilities, not their talents, not their timeline, not their expectations, not their strategic plans. It was God's that mattered. And as long as they could rest and rely upon God's great purposes, they could go anywhere. And God would prepare the way. He would, he would provide a means by which they would be met. You know when Hudson Taylor uh, landed for the first time in Shanghai, when he got off the boat and started walking down the docks in Shanghai, he didn't know the language, he had no contacts, he had no one to meet, he had uh, no possibility of connecting with a single soul in Shanghai, and from that effort, God birthed China Inland Mission, which transformed the Chinese church in the years before the communist revolution that sustained the church during all of the years of Mao's cultural revolution and that is sustaining it even now as they face the fiercest persecution that they have since the 1960s. From a guy who stepped off a boat knowing no one and not knowing the language and having nowhere to go. But he believed God. God's work done in God's way will never lack for God's supply, he declared. Uh, this is what the disciples believed. You have heard it from me, Jesus declared. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When we look at the history of the church, this is a story that is repeated over and over and over again. Cyril Methodius uh, launching out from the Byzantine world into the heart of of what was then wild wastelands of barbarian tribes swarming from the Russian steppes across northern Europe and into the heart of western Europe. And they went forth believing that God intended to transform the world to ensure that the promise was fulfilled. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hello, world. Jesus bought this place with his blood. Deal with it. That's the definition of evangelism. It's trusting that the, the work has been done. We simply are the mopping up crew. We go forth believing that the Lord is paving the way, that the Lord is making certain that, that we're in the right place at the right time, and then we boldly proclaim his truth. The problem with the modern church is that we have a hard time believing these things. The problem with the modern church is that we are as materialistic as any Marxist. We believe that we have to have all of our ducks in a row uh, 
that we simply have to do all of the preparation work ourselves. But we, um, we love church planting uh, and uh, the presbytery that I'm in, but uh, we are so cautious. I, I look at Paul's second and third missionary journey and see all of the church planting that he's doing, and I'm thinking to myself, how did he train the elders that fast? He didn't have Van Dixorn's book. How on earth did he prepare them to, uh, to then evangelize their communities so that 30 years after the Apostle Paul plants the gospel in uh, the Anatolian Plain, the Lycus Valley with three churches is alive with gospel fruitfulness. How does this happen? You believe the gospel. You believe that God intends to fulfill his purposes. You, you, you trust him. The story of God's work, the story of Christ's doing and teaching does not end with the cross, the empty tomb, or the ascent into heaven. The great lesson of Acts chapter 1 is that we've only begun to see all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, which is really rare because it's just so depressing. Not the news itself, just the way it's presented is so depressing. I think to myself, what possible hope is there? Man, I start to think to myself, you know, maybe J. Vernon McGee was right. We shouldn't polish brass on a sinking ship. But then I read my Bible, and I realize that uh, we're not supposed to be polishing brass, and we're not on a sinking ship. Instead, uh, we are the emissaries of a glorious message that the world yearns to hear for all of its rebellion against it, but the word of the cross is powerful for the transformation of the nations. There's this great story of uh, Luis Palau, uh, who uh, is one of the great evangelists in the Latin American world of the last generation, who made his home here in the Pacific Northwest in Portland. He was, uh, he was in uh, Ecuador, and uh, he was there for a, a large uh, sort of uh, crusade-like rally in the local soccer stadium. And he was, uh, he was being interviewed at the local radio station. At the outset, the, the person who was doing the interviewing said, I'm a communist. I do not believe anything that you're doing. In fact, I, I believe that you're a threat to the stability of our community. And uh, Luis Palau simply said uh, that uh, the, the word of God is uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And she said, don't, don't quote the Bible. I, I, I don't believe the Bible. Uh, we need to have a fruitful discussion about social justice and the, all of the things that Christianity has done to enslave the poor people of uh, my nation. And Luis Palau said, well, yeah, um, the, the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
Over the course of the 30-minute conversation, he quoted that one scripture, only that one scripture, about 30 times. By the end of the conversation, the interviewer was in tears. Then after they came off the air, she asked if he could explain to her more clearly the gospel of Christ. The world kicks and screams and yelps and whelps against the hope of the gospel, but it's the very hope that sets them free. They yearn for it. They always have. Uh, From the moment that the uh, gospel went forth at the riverside in in the presence of a, a seller of purple cloth named Lydia, all the way up to the present day, people yearn to know that these things are true. If only we would be bold enough, courageous enough to believe these things ourselves and go forth and bring the good news. This is the promise. Part of the economy of God, an essential part of the story, is sometimes waiting. Jesus sent his disciples back to Jerusalem and told them to wait. There is a perfect time. There is a perfect place for the gospel to go forth. He is preparing our world for the next great evangelical preparatorio. It is a great hope of ours that the Reformation is right around the corner. And in the meantime, our job is just to do our job just to do our job in our families, just to do our job in our churches, just to do our job in our local communities, uh, believing that the gospel is true. Uh, When I worked for D. James Kennedy uh, years ago, uh, Dr. Kennedy was renowned for an evangelistic methodology called evangelism explosion. It's... uh, It's basically a plan for how do you share the gospel. And I'd heard about Evangelism Explosion. I'd read the textbook, but I'd never really seen it in action. I remember going out the very first time with Dr. Kennedy, all laced up in his suit and and Windsor knot tie to the beach in Fort Lauderdale. And here's this guy, he's walking around on the beach, and there's, you know, people are laid out in various states of, uh, of undress, and Dr. Kennedy is uh, w- walking around sharing the gospel with, it's the most ludicrous looking image I've ever seen in my life. But he would open his mouth and pour forth scripture, and the fruitfulness was astonishing. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. If we would believe that and declare that, I believe that we would be able to see an astonishing transformation of our world, of our culture, of our nation, and of our future. Adai and Agai were discipled by the Apostle Thomas. And they uh, went forth uh, to uh, first the Indus Valley and uh, then from there sailed into the Indian Ocean and off to the Spice Isles. Uh, To this day, there are churches 
uh, that can trace their ancestry back to them just outside the city of Jakarta and just outside of the centers of commerce that that, uh, that Samsung and others have created uh, along the coast of Sumatra. Uh, when, um, when I first went to Iraq the very first time, uh, we had the opportunity to do a little conference in, um, in the city of Kirkuk. It was uh, just after Saddam Hussein uh, went into his spider hole. He, he was not yet captured. And so things were still quite tense. And uh, we were oftentimes surrounded by U.S. military everywhere we went. We had convoys that looked like a Tom Clancy movie. Uh, racing through the streets of Kirkuk. And uh, our conference was to be held at a little Presbyterian church. And I thought, now that's odd. A little Presbyterian church in the middle of Kirkuk. In a war zone. Now, outside the oil fields, we come up to this walled enclosure and uh, there's this old Scottish kirk. This... uh, this stone building, it looks like it could have been, you know, from Kirkaldi or something. And it's sitting in the middle of Iraq, and there's a brass plaque on the corner of uh, this building. And it said, established, 1841, uh, by members of the Church of Scotland, under the direction of Thomas Chalmers. In the middle of Iraq? A little Scottish Kirk? And these guys were still Presbyterians and still faithfully gathering as a community. They had a medical center uh, that cared for their community. Uh, they had a small Christian school. I, I walked back in a hallway and I saw piles of Operation Christmas Child boxes that they were distributing in their community. And I thought, this is the gospel. This is the kind of boldness that we all need to have. This is the kind of vision that we need to be able to see. Why aren't we going into every single corner of the earth? And why aren't we boldly going forth and disputing the nonsense of the modern media and the powers and the principalities in this culture to declare great hope, good news, glad tidings, great joy? That's evangelism. It's not a technique, it's not a methodology, it's simply believing the promises of God. For all of the promises of God, find their yea and amen in him, their yes in him. Uh, The promise, uh, by faith, in Christ Jesus is given to those who believe, therefore we are the children of promise. Uh, For this promise uh, was promised before the foundation of the world. Uh, Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know why I'm optimistic? Because I believe the gospel. It's not because I have some prior knowledge of uh, turns of events On Wall Street, it's not because, as Hal Lindsey says, I've read uh, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. It's because God has declared it. 
waiting is fixed upon a glorious and tangible hope, the fulfillment of his promises. An optimistic eschatology is simply acknowledging the gospel is true. There is amazing, abounding grace. And we can, with all confidence, pray boldly, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right here on earth, just as it is in heaven. That's the gospel. That's our job. That's what the disciples believed when they scattered across the world and turned the world right side up. It's time for us to go forth and do the same thing. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu, defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu, defend. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel is sufficient, that the gospel will prevail among men and nations, that the gospel is good news of glad tidings and great joy. The gospel is a message of sure and certain hope from the very beginning to the very end. Therefore, embolden us, quicken us, send us, Send us, Lord, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Give us divine appointments uh, with the doubters and the skeptics and the brokenhearted and the despised and the rejected and the needy and enable us to bring them the hope that is ours, the hope of eternal life and the renovation of all the earth, uh, making every broken thing whole, uh, making all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.